0: BCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy.
1: Welcome to 0 I'm Oscar Boyd. COP28 has finally come to a close after frantic last-minute negotiations that meant the giant climate summit ran well into overtime. Now with the final text agreed upon, delegates are working their way back home and the venue that hosted the conference will start its transformation into a winter wonderland for the residents of Dubai. There could hardly be a better image to sum up the clash of worlds that was COP28, hosted by an oil-dependent economy a few miles from the world's largest gas-fired power plant attended by more than 100,000 delegates across two weeks at a site built for huge trade shows. So what was all this frenetic activity for? And did COP28 President Sultan Al-Jaber make good on his promise for this to be the most ambitious climate summit to date? For this episode, I talk with Zero's regular host Akshat Rathi about what was achieved and whether the 1.5 degrees Celsius target is still alive. Actually, I appreciate it's been a hectic few days at COP28 and we're getting you right at the end of your Duracell bunny charge. Thank you so much for taking the time and there's a lot to discuss with today's agreement. But before we get into the weeds, let's just quickly understand why the agreements that are made at COP actually matter.
2: It's a good question. You know, 200 countries come together. In this case, 100,000 people fly in from different places to meet, to talk. And really, what do they produce? It's a piece of text. But sometimes, that piece of text can have real-world consequences. We know that from the Paris Agreement. In 2015, when the world signed off on a goal to keep warming below two degrees Celsius and try efforts for 1.5 degrees Celsius, it became a rallying cry. By 2018, we had the formula, net zero by 2050. That is now a target in many cases, a legally binding target for major economies. And it is a corporate target for many of the biggest companies in the world. So when the text is signed off by 200 countries, it has a weight that is hard to get in any other form of diplomacy globally. Sometimes the wording is woolly, there are loopholes, but if the direction of travel is set, it makes a difference.
1: And the text has just been signed off by 200 countries and for the first time contains clear language about moving away from fossil fuels how did that come about
2: that's correct this is the first time in 30 years of having cop meetings there is language that says transitioning away from fossil fuels in the energy system and it might seem silly because of course we know the problem that is climate change is caused by burning fossil fuels and we've known that for decades But because when countries sign off on it, all countries have to sign off on it, that means fossil fuel producers have to sign off on it, and they have been blocking even the mention of fossil fuels for the longest time. We sort of had a breach in the dam in COP26 in Glasgow, where we got a phase down of coal power, and this time we have all fossil fuels covered.
1: So if there's been a breach in the dam, is this now turning into a flood? You know, Simon Steele, who's the head of the UN FCC, he said that this is the beginning of the end for fossil fuels. That's a big claim because the language is suggestive, I would say, of cutting fossil fuels, but doesn't explicitly call for a phase out, which was what a lot of people were hoping for coming into this COP. So how effective do you think this language really is to keep warming below 1.5 degrees C?
2: Well, this is where we get into the weeds, because this is where the science comes to play. Now, the science is very clear. It says, to be able to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, you have to start reducing emissions now pretty quickly, and then reach net zero carbon dioxide emissions by 2050. How does any single country get there? They can decide. There are many pathways available. And do you always have to phase out fossil fuels in all of those pathways? Not really. In fact, in almost every scenario to get to net zero by 2050, there is still plenty of oil and gas being consumed in 2050 on a day-to-day basis. So yes, eventually we have to phase out fossil fuels, but maybe some countries have to do it sooner, some countries have to do it later, and it's very easy to get into a fight about what date, which country does it. And because COP agreements have to be, by consensus, falling into that kind of debate gets really messy. So the way out in this text is that countries are being called upon to transition away from fossil fuels in line with the science to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius and reach net zero by 2050. That is a much more precise language. And yes, it does mean a rapid decrease in the consumption of fossil fuels because there's no other scenario to be able to get you to that point. So I guess
1: the flip side of the fossil fuel equation is that we need new sources of energy to replace all the energy we currently get from fossil fuels. Just last week we talked with Jenny Chase in an episode of Zero about the goal to triple renewables by 2030. Did this goal of tripling renewables actually make it into the final text?
2: It did, alongside many others such as doubling energy efficiency, accelerating the move towards zero and low emissions vehicles. there's a whole litany of technologies uh, mentioned in the text. Hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, nuclear. Those are all things that you're right. We're going to have to build if we are to replace fossil fuels, because the world's consumption of energy is not going to decline anytime soon. And especially for developing countries, they want to be able to use more energy. And so The biggest takeaway from having these specific goals in some places, or at least mentions of technology, is that that's a market signal for businesses to understand that investing in these technologies listed in this document agreed by 200 countries is likely to be the profitable thing in the long term. That's what Jennifer Morgan, Germany's Climate Envoy, told us, that It's now clear investing in fossil fuels will likely end up in a stranded asset, but investing in clean energy is likely to be the profitable route.
1: One of the technologies you mentioned there was carbon capture, and we could get into a whole debate about that because I know people are concerned that the technology has not been proven at a scale that we need. But one concrete thing that was mentioned and that we know can cut emissions very quickly and has a near-term date on it in the text, was methane. So the text says, countries are called on to substantially reduce non-carbon dioxide emissions globally, including in particular methane emissions by 2030. So we made a past episode of Zero Together about how quickly cutting methane emissions will have an impact on the speed of warming. So having this language, that's got to be really significant,
2: right? Yes, it really is. And there's a little bit of background that might help you understand how sometimes these COP meetings can work and actually produce good solutions. So the first time methane was mentioned at COP meetings was in COP26 in Glasgow. A group of countries, some 80 countries, came together and said, we will reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030. It's completely voluntary. And there was some momentum given to it by the US and the EU coming together on that goal. Since then, the number of countries joining that pledge, the Global Methane Pledge, has grown. Uh, The ability to hold those countries to account has improved because now we have satellites in the sky that can look at those methane emissions. And there is now a UN body, the Methane Emissions Observatory, that can check whether countries are living up to those goals. So momentum was building. And so it's kind of amazing that now all 200 countries are supposed to target methane emissions. Of course, not all 200 countries have to reduce it by 30% by 2030, but maybe that's the next thing that'll come at a future COP.
1: There are obviously so many parts of this agreement we could talk about. We had that loss and damage fund agreed upon two weeks ago. Climate adaptation was a huge topic being discussed, but I really want to talk about implementation. So in his closing speech, COP 28 President Sultan Al Jaber said, "Let me sound a word of caution: an agreement is only as good as its implementation. We are what we do, not what we say." Which I think is kind of is true. It's a very honest moment from him. Um, having words agreed to in text is nice, but obviously it's the implementation that matters. What exactly is needed to implement the COP 28 deal?
2: Absolutely. One of the things that COPs are not created for, as Christiana Figueres told us is that they are not created to implement the policies that they are signing off on. Because those policies, after all, will be set up in the national context, in domestic settings, within countries, but also regions. And that is what really moves the ball. It's implementing those policies. Doing it requires many things. First, it requires capacity. Not all countries have the skills to be able to understand the energy transition, to have the skilled workforce that would go out and build these solutions, to have the institutions that would back up a transformation of energy systems and eventually agricultural systems, transport systems, and whatnot. Second, you need finance. Developed countries have big central banks, lots of cash. Yes, they're going through their own crises, but they do have the ability to turn around to their financial institutions and use the money to get work done. You can't say the same thing of developing countries. And so a lot of COP meetings become fights about finance, about getting developed countries to give money to developing countries. We didn't see very much of that in this COP. We saw some side deals around climate finance. The UAE, for example, announced a $5 billion fund that they want to invest in developing countries and ideally bring in more private capital from that $5 billion, it will likely add up to 20, 30 billion dollars. But, you know, we need hundreds of billions of dollars. So that question is now going to be the question over the next two years. In fact, COP30, two years from now, is going to be in Brazil, and Brazil is the G20 president next year. So Brazil has committed that it's going to make the reform of the international financial system its core push, where it will work on it in the G20 presidency and then eventually at COP. And then finally, all of this happens when there is technologies available to deploy in developing countries. And so there is a mention in the text around technology transfer. Now, it's very simple and vague, and technology transfer gets countries up against the wall, but at least it's there. This is the first time there is an acknowledgement that you need finance, you need people with the capacity to do the work, and you need the technologies.
1: And one thing that really made this COP stand out was its size and scale. There were some 100,000 delegates there. There were apparently 400,000 people who attended the Green Zone, which is not where the negotiations happened, but the appendage to the main COP area. I just wonder what you think about the size and scale of these things. We were there together. It was a vast venue set up for the Expo 2020. All these amazing architectural buildings and people from all countries, all different professions, all there in one place. What do you
2: think about COP having grown to this size? People have mixed feelings about it. People who've attended COPS for years say that it's becoming bigger and perhaps it's becoming more annoying because you have more fossil fuel lobbyists and you have more corporate lobbyists and sometimes these side deals become distractions and you're not really focused on the core part of the negotiation. But then on the other hand, The people who come there are people who are perhaps new to the idea of doing something about climate, or are people who think there are opportunities they could grab and make money or go to new countries and open new markets. We are in a messy transition. You know, there is a phrase that was used in the text, orderly transition. Well, it's going to be messy, even if it is slightly orderly. (laughs) And people of all professions come here, bankers financiers, oil and gas companies, renewable energy companies, tech bros, they want to find out what it is that they can do with their skills to try and deploy some of these solutions. Now, do they all come with a clean heart? Maybe not. But if they are coming towards meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement, the more the merrier.
1: After the break, is this the most significant COP agreement since Paris?
0: Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey
1: coming back to the deal we've talked about some of the stuff that was in it were there any major things that were left out from the deal
2: oh that would be a long list and If I give you some country negotiators, I think uh, we're gonna have a overnight podcast. (laughs) I'll pick on one thing that came up quite often. Now, a lot of the conversation we've had so far has been focused on reducing emissions. Absolutely important. But equally important is being able to adapt to warming. This is something that developing countries desperately need help on. And in fact, as we learned, investing a dollar in adaptation can bring you $7 in economic benefits. And so the economic case for it exists too. And this COP was going to be the COP that agreed on a global goal on adaptation. Uh, it was something that COP26 signed off on. It took two years to come up with a goal. And it did leave many participants unhappy. They have signed off on it. It is a framework that addresses many of the key points. You can listen more about those key points in our previous episode with Patrick Furku-Yen. But it left out specifics. It did not actually give measurable targets on how to reach those goals and it left out a lot on finance. So that's now the work over the next two years where they will come up with more quantified goals and they will figure out how to finance many of these solutions.
1: So you said there that some parties at the conference were left disappointed. It's 200 odd countries coming to COP28. On one side, it's the most climate vulnerable countries, small island developing states, for example. On the other hand, you have big fossil fuel producers, the US, but also all the OPEC countries. Not everyone's going to be happy about this deal. So I wonder what are some of the reactions that you heard from people on the ground as this deal came out today?
2: Diplomacy is the art of compromise. And it was kind of stunning this morning when all of us sat down to attend the final meeting And we expected there to be a fight. We expected countries to rise up and make passionate argument for why certain things that they wanted weren't in there. But within the first minute, the global stock take, the document we are talking about, was signed off. And there was standing ovations and then silence because people were confused.
1: Just shocked it was so quick.
2: Yes, it shocked everybody. That is not to say oppositions and grievances weren't there. They were there. They just came after they allowed the decision to go through. And those grievances came from small island developing states. Uh, Samoa's spokesperson spoke passionately about how having loopholes in the text, allowing transitional fuels, uh, which is typically code for natural gas, or targeting fossil fuels only in the energy systems, but not in, say, agriculture to make fertilizers or to make plastics leaves out much of oil and gas consumption still on the table. Or the text uses phrases like calls on, which in UN speak is not very strong. It's not urges, it's not should. And so, yes, there are compromises and island states are not very happy. But they were also not so unhappy to actually block the deal. The fossil fuel producers, who also had to make compromises because Saudi Arabia we know was adamant on not having phasing out language. Well, they got their way, but that got replaced by transitioning away. It will affect their business model. Investments will go more towards clean energy as a result of this agreement. And so not everyone was happy, but there was progress.
1: And presiding over this meeting was Sultan Al Jaber, the president of COP28. You previously chased him all around the world, For a profile. We spoke about him at length in an episode just before COP28. And there was scandal around him at multiple points during this presidency. Videos of him getting irate with former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, emerged. Documents that seemed to show he was using COP meetings to discuss ad not business came out, though he strongly denied this afterwards. And yet he got this agreement signed. Do you think he was an effective
2: COP president? There were a lot of people who've attended many COPs. And this was perhaps one of the best organized COPs. There was also a lot of praise for how the COP was run. The presidency made themselves available. They heard lots of people and they tried to take as many views on board. Of course, the test of whether COP28 would be a success or not would down to perhaps two things. One, would there be a loss and damage fund with money in it? Tick, you got that on day one. And two, will there be enough in the global stock take response to reduce the gap between where we are and where we need to be on the net zero trajectory. Partial check. That's where things are difficult. At least fossil fuels got mentioned. But as we saw, there are loopholes. So of course fossil fuel producers have a business model they would like to protect and they found some ways to protect it. But it is also important to recognize it's the first time all countries have signed off on transitioning away from fossil fuels. So I think the presidency would consider this a pretty good success. But let's remember, the success of a COP really can only be measured in hindsight. Will we, in two to three years, five years, look back at the UAE consensus as the deal is known now and see it as a consensus that was effective? That remains to be seen.
1: So the word historic is already being thrown around a lot. Some people are calling it the most significant COP since the Paris Agreement, but the goal of this obviously is to keep the 1.5 degree C target alive. Is it still alive?
2: Again, this is one of those things where people will have very differing views. Some people believe right now that we are already off the path and we're definitely crossing 1.5 degrees Celsius. Others think we may do that, but then we may come back down if we use things like carbon removal technologies. And of course, then you ask any COP president, regardless of whether they come from a fossil fuel country or a vulnerable country, they'll all say, we're going to do our best to try and keep 1.5C alive. The thing to note, though, is that if you read the Paris Agreement, it says, holding the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and pursuing efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius. It means that even if you cross 1.5 degrees Celsius, you are committed, as countries having signed off on the Paris Agreement, that you will pursue efforts to reach 1.5. That means the goal remains, regardless of whether you breach it, you cross it, you have to come back down to 1.5 degrees Celsius, put in the effort to do it, because 1.5 degrees Celsius is a death sentence for many vulnerable countries. Akshat, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Zero. For all the latest coverage about COP28 and reactions to the agreement, head to bloomberg.com slash green. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate or review Xero on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Share this episode with a friend or with a future climate negotiator. You can get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Our producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks as always to Kira Bindram. I'm Akshat Rathi. back soon.